0: Welcome to the Kini Interviews. Through this series you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Kini is the Malaysian word for current and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector.
1: Hello, my name is Karen Delpho, and I want to thank you for joining the Kinney interview series. And I'd like to welcome you to our interview with Peter Sherry of Axiom Water Technologies. Peter is an industrial chemist and an integrated water management professional with 29 years of practical analytical process design and troubleshooting operations and consulting experience. Peter is based out of Cairns in tropical North Queensland, and Peter's activities are mostly focused on the Pacific Island Nations, In this interview, we're going to discuss his current projects in Papua New Guinea and in Vanuatu. Peter takes us into the villages where he works, sharing how he approaches communities and how he has been successful in implementing water supply, environmental monitoring, and sanitation delivery projects. In this interview, we discuss community perceptions of water, community assets versus private assets for water, and the potential and very real role of community water champions for community water stewardship, as well as the role of the boutique consulting firm in international development. I hope that this interview will interest and inspire you and, in a sense, also transport you into the heart of community life in the Pacific. Links to issues that we discuss can be found on Peter's interview page via www.kinney.org.au. And as always, I would like to welcome you and to share your thoughts and your feedback on everything we discuss. Over the next two weeks, articles looking at some of the topics that we cover in this interview will also be published on the site. And if you're interested in learning more, please visit the Kinney site or you can like the Australian Water Partnership on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in and please enjoy my interview with Peter. Peter, thank you so much for joining and um, welcome to Kinney Interviews. So the idea behind Kinney Interview series is that what we're looking to do is build a bridge in the field of water management between Australia and the Asia Pacific, and in particular, talk with leading practitioners about the work that they're doing in the Asia Pacific and find ways to make some of the knowledge that's been generated in Australia um, over the course of the last 50 years even accessible to people who are maybe starting the journey of catchment management waterway management and applying some of the technologies in their country, in their home country. Um, In particular, Kinney is looking at issues of uh, scarcity, water scarcity and water reform. And um, the the, the overarching goal of this project is to start to build bridges and to share knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific and to find ways to distill Australian knowledge and distill knowledge from the Asia-Pacific and make it accessible. Mm-hmm. So this um, interview series is a part of that and um, in interviewing leading practitioners in the space of water management who are working in the Asia Pacific and have done remarkable and, and in some ways very innovative and outstanding work such as what you've been doing um, to help move water management along and become more integrated and more effective in a sense is is really what we're trying to do is to kind of tease out um, how that's gotten started and what that looks like now and where you're heading with that. Does that um, yeah, okay. that help a little bit?
0: Yeah, that Excellent. helps. Yeah. Helps me Great. phrase my answers a bit too.
1: Yeah, perfect. Um, so I, I think the first thing is if you could just spend a few minutes talking about your professional journey um, and where you started and where you are now and the kind of work that you're doing and how you're in a sense, really achieving integrated water management projects in the Pacific. Okay.
0: So, I actually started my prefer- or professional training uh, with university as a, a mechanical engineer. I-, I had a long-standing desire to-, to do mechanical engineering, but I got a year and a half into it and realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to do, and I switched over to chemistry. So from there, I uh, did an applied science degree majoring in chemistry and started working in... uh, Well, went straight out into industry, uh, working in the mining industry in Western Australia and have always had roles right from the start that were a combination of the laboratory, the analytical, the white lab coat brigade to some extent that people typically think about when they think about scientists. Uh, merged with a very hands-on, practical, getting out in the field and getting dirty kind of approach. And, uh, no, it's my, my professional I, I'm career. I'm going to jump
1: in because I think it's really yeah. interesting, Peter, I also, uh, my first job out of university was also in the mining sector and I was a gold and silver explorations geologist. So really? very similar in a sense. There you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah, it's like mining. Why is mining there when you want to do science? I don't know, but it just it happens to be a part of many of our journeys. It's, it's interesting. Mm. Well, particularly, you know,
0: near 30, 30 years ago in Australia, um, it was a pretty exciting time to be getting into mining. Uh, I, was, I was interviewed for a, a, you know, for a chemist role in, in Tom Price with Hammersley Iron. Uh, and had the job before I finished uni, so that was a good incentive to you know, get through final exams, I tell you. Um, yes, yeah, so I went and lived out in the desert for four years, uh, starting at Tom Price and then moved to the coast at Dampier and got to do cool things because I was one of two, you know, two scientists uh, with... Any sort of any sort of appropriate background. There was, we have a few ecologists and botanists on around sites, sort of scattered around doing things. But because I was one of two people who knew anything about chemistry or physics, I got to be the uh, second uh, radiation safety officer for the site, which meant I got to go crawling around in the bottom of crushers, checking radiation density gauges. I learned how to drive haul trucks, and you know, like hundred and sixty ton haul trucks like driving a small house around um, because we had to do that because we had to go up in the mine and be moving around checking things so we had to knew had to know what it was like trying to drive those things and see around you so that was pretty cool um, I managed managed teams doing sampling from ships while we were loading iron ore uh, and all through this I was pro- Doing a lot of spectroscopy work, so X-ray fluorescence, um, another yeah, instrumental technique. So doing doing a lot of chemistry, but a lot of it was field based as well as supervision. So bit of bit of trial by fire. My first job, I was notionally supervising guys who were at least twenty five years older than me, and yeah, going out and managing miners when you're straight out of the union. I was fairly. Quite retiring, sort of a young fella. That was a bit of a bit of a, a, a test, but um, so I've always worked in. But that's how you learn, devices. right?
1: You just got to get kind of thrown into it. Yeah, and, and, and put yeah, yourself. That,
0: yeah, at that point, I mean, the, there was an X-ray spectrometer on site at Tom Price that was the main, you know, the primary grade control tool for everything coming out of the mine, and it would break regularly because it was old. So. Um, the you know, management said, you're a scientist, you know how to fix it. <laughs> um, so for the first two years on site, I had the highest phone bill of anyone on site, including the general manager. Um, because I yeah, would was just...
1: thinking this was like pre-Google where you couldn't just like, Oh yeah. Zip out you're like, Oh goodness. How do I actually fix this? Yeah. I mean, Mechanical engineering, Please kick in now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Fortunately, I'd done, yeah, I'd done enough electrical stuff, and I was, I'd always dabbled with a bit of electronics as well. But this was all valve you know, valve technology, um, primarily in the electronics. So i just basically get my toolkit out in the X-ray room, put the hands-free phone on, ring Phillips in Perth, and say, right, this is what it's doing. Talk me through.
1: Yeah. So I learnt a lot. How long, how long did you end up staying in mining for?
0: Uh, Mining directly four years, but then I moved to Boyne Smelters, so I moved from iron ore into aluminium, but on the the smelting end, not the mining and uh, alumina production. So same company, just moved with Rio Tinto. So all up, I I had 11 years with Rio Tinto.
1: That's a good, Um, that's a decent chunk of time to stay with any employer, I think, especially in this day and age, but yeah. I seem to have a seven year thing.
0: Yes, there's, there's been a lot of seven year, seven year steps since then, which is interesting. Um,
1: and then from, from mining and from Rio Tinto, what, what, what was next? Uh, well, I was, I was retrenched
0: from, from Rio Tinto. So, um, basically took a year off, did a certificate in small business management, uh, thought about what I wanted to do. We'd paid the house off with the retrenchment, so you know, there's no financial pressure. Um, kids were still young. So, you know, I spent a year, as I said, doing doing a small business, cert, so coming up with a plan to build a consultancy, which we ended up doing. Spent some time going, just, you know, taking my kids' classes for reading and that sort of stuff. Um, so from there... Uh, set up a, a practice consulting in industrial spectroscopy so doing training calibrations helping people with instrument selection that sort of stuff so did that for four years and towards the end of that i actually got contacted by a friend who knew i was a chemist and knew i had a background in water quality as well from the from the lab days and got into troubleshooting water treatment plant through that Went when it got a five a five week contract on this site, on a particular site, and was still there five years later because they just kept asking me to do stuff. So uh, that was cool.
1: It sounds like it. you're the ultimate sort of troubleshooter resource in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I anything love it. To do with yeah, that's engineering, cool. water, chemistry, this guy can probably figure out what's going wrong and, and figure out how to fix it. So yeah. that became your, your that, niche in a sense. I would say. Yeah. huh? Yeah, and um.
0: As a result of that, so that my 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 friend was working for a company called Betstierborn, which became um, GE Infrastructure Water and Process Technologies, I was bought by them. So while I was doing this work at the oil shale project, his boss said, hey, we've got this problem on another site. So I started contract, subcontracting to them and then got to the point where I was... Best job interview I've ever had. I was flying back through Melbourne and had about six hours layover, and the, the general manager called me in, sat me down, gave me a cup of coffee, and just put a notepad and a pen on the table and slid it across towards me and said, Write down a number. How much will it cost for you to come work for us? <laughs> so that was, uh, that was interesting.
1: That must have been kind of an amazing experience. To have. Yeah, it, it was daunting. And you're like, how do I praise myself? I don't even know what to do with the situation here. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, so I did that. And so it, and out of that, I moved into more training with specialty chemicals and, and really specializing in desalination advanced water treatment. So, again, I became a bit of the troubleshooter. So it was where there are difficult applications, um, tricky designs that needed the the chem, you know, detailed chemistry knowledge, better hands-on practical experience, understanding how stuff worked, and being able to communicate with engineers, etc. So I could go into plants or design processes, and people could understand that I knew what I was talking about. So I, yeah, you know, became a roving technical troubleshooter and application specialist for for GE, and did that for seven years um, through various roles. Ended up running the application engineering group for GE for a couple of years. Um, and then got, just got sick of that with the, the GE commercial pressure, basically, and um, jumped ship and went to work for GHD as a consultancy. Um, I'd, I'd brushed shoulders with a few people from GHD during the time with GE, and I you know, thought, oh, this seems like a reasonable sort of organisation to go work for. And did. I did all sorts of stuff, and I've probably worked on a hundred, and I think I've I've counted. I've worked on about one hundred and fifty projects in seven years. Some of them were very small, some of them were huge. So I ended yep.
1: up, I ended up a lot of overlapping. I'm sure of different projects as well. So yeah, that's right. So it sounds like through the course of working with mining and then with GE, you were really able to refine and spe- specialize in your approach to. Troubleshooting and multidisciplinary approaches to you know solving problems in this sort of water chemistry space, and yeah. then you were able to take that and then just kind of almost blow it up with your consulting job and apply it in so many different contexts, almost um, really above and beyond the the limits that the other companies maybe had held you inside of. So that sounds like a just yeah. a great process to go through. Yeah,
0: um, you know, like you know, Rio Tinto had trained me very well for me to leave. Uh, Learned a lot of skills through GHD. Then when I decided to leave them, um, you know, I had a a lot more things in the toolkit through managing, you know, been managing groups of engineers and I'd managed civil design projects and electrical projects, all sorts of things. Some of them not with any sort of connection to water at all. I was just doing project management work. So getting a further appreciation.
1: When you left... um, Consulting was it to really start your own yeah. initiative in a sense? Yeah,
0: I I wanted to get off the treadmill. You know, I'd been i been with GHD for seven years. So it was it was a combination of things. I was you know, working working in cans. so it was kind of at the end of the colony. You know, it was, um, that some of the some of the senior management in this part of the business didn't really understand what I was about. People that I'd worked with through Brisbane and other parts did, but the situation at the time was that um, I was really unhappy with what was going on wanted to do other things and and get more into the wash space and the development space, and they didn't want me to do it. Um, And and
1: with GHD, did you start working in the space in the Pacific even or in wash and in development at all, or was that um, something that that came...
0: No, I started to. Uh, I'd, I'd done a few projects in PNG more on the environmental water quality and uh, yeah, remote camp water and sanitation stuff. So, kind of the, the bigger end of town in terms of money and engineering standards, that sort of thing.
1: And now uh, you're working really across the Pacific. Um, you've done projects in, at PNG. Uh, you're currently really doing a lot of work in Vanuatu, and um, what can you talk up a little bit about what sorts of projects you're you're doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So
0: uh, start with start with Vanuatu because it's the biggest one. I'm I've engaged on a long term uh, contract running in parallel with uh, an urban development project, and I've designed and am managing the water quality management part of that project. So we're doing, you know, we're looking at uh, sources of contamination of storm water uh, in the catchments, and looking at processes to intercept and address those flows, and also looking, at, uh, also doing monitoring of the receiving environment uh, you know, to track track improvements in the water quality there as we go along. Uh, another part of it is actually. Uh, a really important part is working with local national staff there to provide capacity building. So there's people like uh, the water uh, water technical officers with the water resources department that have a fair bit of experience, but they lack resources and they're not sort of up to date with things. So, um, and they might not necessarily understand the why behind the what that they're doing. So a lot of that, is coming through having them working alongside me when we're doing various parts of the, of the project. And uh, I'm also now just starting on some policy development work with the government, so looking at various aspects of, of water management, wastewater management, approvals, those sorts of things. So starting to get more into the, into the governance side of things and you know, helping to create a more holistic approach to what they're doing and a, and a coordinated, integrated approach to what they're doing about uh, you know, various water resource, management of various water resources in the country. So that's a pretty exciting time. It's a, it's a great so project. As, to as, a,
1: as a big like policy wonk governance nerd, I'm quite curious kind of where things are at in terms of um, water governance in Vanuatu.
0: They They have some reasonable policy frameworks, but a lot of it, I don't. I don't want to be overly critical. Um, a lot of it is um, a bit toothless. Probably
1: issues of implementation. I am just guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. A bit like PNG too. They. They. The policies are reasonably framed, but they. They don't go, in my view, quite far enough into detail. Um, a lot of it's, you know, fairly high level statements that say, you won't do this, but they don't provide Or you. Know, yeah. You, you, know, you shall. Provide good, you know, good clean water, but there's no metrics, and there's no there's no frameworks about for for monitoring, management, enforcement, uh, and and no penalties. So you know, we're starting to develop that sort of stuff, as well as looking for revenue opportunities because you know, in, in Australia, I don't know about elsewhere, but certainly in Australia, we're used to having to pay for permits to dispose of wastewater. That sort of thing. So those sorts of systems don't, don't appear there, and the government's just providing facilities for, with no revenue stream to help cover the costs. So We're exploring some opportunities for that as well.
1: It's kind of an, it's an exciting kind of space to work in if you have the political will to actually implement responsible water management and integrated water management. It's, it, then it comes to an issue of sort of prioritising, okay, where do we need to start How do you actually start? I think that's a real question that a lot of people who are working across the Asia Pacific have is like, how do you actually start? Where do you start? You, you have, you have political will and that's critical, but sometimes a lot of times I would say um, these, these upper level or high level policy statements that come out of the government are less effective in mobilizing action than say community based statements or regional statements where people have a direct connection with the decision maker at the local or regional level who is saying this is a huge priority for us and this is how we're going to take it on. So it's like in terms of the governance, you have the spectrum um, and you have all the right things happening at that very high level. But how do you prioritize and how do you how do you actually get started? What's what's been your experience? Uh, Money. money money helps um in
0: in the in the pacific you need uh, a donor who's prepared to assign resources for the long term you know, none of these things happen quickly and it can't you just can't have a short sighted approach to this particularly you know, i mean it's kind of it's standard standard knowledge i guess now certainly amongst more recently, educated people, that you have to be in for the long haul with governance changes. Um, so, and as you say, it's a, it requires a mixture of things. You know, this, um, having, having the, um, the intellectual as well, and emotional motivators for people is a big thing I've found. You know that people have to be aligned around a cause and if they if they don't understand the value of what you're trying to do or and ideally be trying to be trying to do it themselves but not know how to do it and just be looking for help uh, it won't happen and that's the, kind of, that's a nice segue into PNG because one I've been working in PNG now quite regularly for 5 years and there's no shortage of policy in PNG Around wash, what there is is a shortage of coordination, resources, monitoring, and you know, implementation and monitoring. That's the biggest struggle, and somewhere in that mix it's capacity. And you know, ca- capacity is a major thing everywhere I've been in the Pacific. And it's, it's very slowly starting to change, but it is it's still a big deal.
1: Yep. I'm just I'm thinking about your resources. So let's say tick, we've achieved the resources question, and so the very first thing you need to do is have everybody aligned in terms of maybe the vision of where this is going. Um, you have to put resources in place, and you have to build capacity so that everyone's basically speaking the same language, yeah. uh, because. Yeah, exactly. When when understanding is so across the board, that alignment process and that capacity process is, is definitely critical. And in terms of building that capacity process, are there ways that you've worked that you found to be particularly effective? I'm thinking about um, one of the fundamental learnings coming out of some of the other work that's happened in the region is that if you don't understand the resource from a geographical perspective, from a hydrological perspective, you can't actually start to implement any sort of initiative or on the ground decision making effort um, because you don't have that that information or that data is this something that you're also experiencing working in in um, vanuatu or png is is there a process of really saying okay in terms of building capacity we need to understand the resource we need to get everybody up to speed we need to agree upon the numbers um, because if there's one impression on this side oh we have plenty of water and the other side says no 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 we're running out of water and there's no actual data to back that up. That makes it very difficult to actually implement a nuts and yeah. bolts project. Yeah, definitely. And I'm interestingly with uh,
0: the work I'm doing in Vanuatu and the work I'm doing currently in PNG are really at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, the magnitude of water resource management that I'm looking at and. In lo- in some ways, in- at opposite ends of the spectrum in complexity, because while well, I'm um, Vanuatu is is really well, it's mostly centered on Port Vila. We're really looking at national policy and and national processes. Whereas the work I'm doing in in uh, PNG is current, is really set uh, focused on a couple of villages, which is great. <laughs> Because um, it lets you get right down to the nuts and bolts and the detail of understanding people's beliefs. So, I guess to try and answer the question, in terms of assuming you had, re- assuming you had the financial and and human resources, it is, I think, absolutely fundamental. Where and I think where I've been successful is to invest a lot of the, a lot of time up front, just spending time with people and listening and inquiring um, and it, it sounds kinda simplistic but it's it is really as simple as that it's taking you know, understanding what the local people's perceptions are of what the situation is as well as the reality understanding their issues and concerns frame, then framing that back to them in terms of the technology and possible solutions and working with them to develop a pathway forward, it's just it's it's kind of classic IWM theory, but it's sharing different inf- aspects of the information to work work through the process together, and that's what I do.
1: Um, and Peter, can, can you talk about what that actually looks like in these communities, both at the government level and also uh, at the community level? I'm, I'm thinking. You know, um, with my, my chat with Chris last week, it's about you know sitting down and having a cup of tea um, with people in India and just really, you know, having a really good translator and being able to just get on the same level and really have a real conversation about these issues. Um, and I'm just wondering what does that look like um i'm i know that you and i have spoken before about sort of gender issues as well and um it would just be interesting to kind of explore what the dynamics are of starting those conversations at, at both of the levels that you're working with in both of the countries okay so starting with the village in
0: png where where i've been introduced to villages so far it's been through a champion from within the village might be a one of the elders one of the senior landowners but then who then acts as a facilitator to introduce me to people be a cultural guide but beyond that in terms of what it what it actually looks like it really is about sitting around under the trees with people um when i go to when i go to png most of the time i I stay in the village you know i'm 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 there 24/7. Uh, we I'm walking around the villages. People can come up and talk to me at any time. So it's and it's a combination of unstructured time, just being there and observing, getting to understand the, the ebb and flow of life and how water in in this case how water and sanitation issues and constraints play out. Um, and by doing that. Both, you get you get both in a, a very high rate of learning about how people actually do things through both um, them telling you and also just observations of things that they don't even think about. So, you know, for example, you see in one of the villages. You know, I'm normally up pretty early. I see people hanging around, or the men hanging around particularly, they've just got a towel around their waist and a toothbrush and the first time I saw that I couldn't work out what was going on and then you start watching and you think it's because okay, they're watching to see who's gone down to the creek or down to the river, whether there's someone down there, if it's someone that they're, you know, it's culturally appropriate for them to go down and bathe next to or go to the toilet in in the proximity of so just un, you know, getting that Deep understanding of how the social and cultural things play into the physical reality and attitudes and perceptions around water management and water access and sanitation is really really critical. So that's that's one extreme. You know, it is it really is sitting down and having a cup of tea. I spent a lot of time in PNG sitting under trees in the village, talking to the men, talking to the Marys. Different times a day, usually. More often during the day in the villages I'm in, it's women that are around in the village because a lot of the men are off working. Um, yeah, most of the, a lot of them have jobs or they' off, they're off fishing or doing other stuff. So it's mostly the women in the village and then more in the evening the men tend to be around. So it's understanding the dynamics of the village too, and and making being making an effort to be there at the right times to find the people that you want to listen to or talk to, or provide the opportunity uh, for to come and talk to me. So that's really important too.
1: So, I have I have two like immediate sort of questions that are popping to mind. No, it's good. Go for it. Based on these like this this description that you're providing, I'm wondering. With the champions that you engage with who sort of open the doors to allow you into these villages, are there certain qualities that you see in those individuals um, that are consistent across the villages that you work? I mean, there's probably a... Maybe some additional education that that person has received, or somebody's very astutely aware of a particular water management problem needing to seek out some outside expertise to bring into the village or um, studying abroad or language skills or communication skills or um, maybe a higher social level within so that's one question <laughs> it's just kind yeah. of like what is what do those champions look like and the other question um, and and i, I don't want to like double whammy you with questions but i'm thinking about the perceptions the perceptions of water in a community is very different than our perception of water and i remember um, i traveled throughout indonesia and wanted to go swimming in the, uh, in the sea often. And of course, like, you know, you can't go swimming really in a swimsuit or anything like that. You have to be wearing all your clothes and yeah, they, some, some communities will look at me and just be like, well, why would you do that? Because when you'd walk on the beach in the morning, it would just be like turds, you know, people would yeah. see that as their toilet. And it's, it's a totally different perception of the water. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that as well. So two, two kind of big questions, but um, those are just my thoughts from your, from your little story there. Yep,
0: okay. So the, so the first one about characteristics of the leaders. Um, my – I guess I think the main, common th- the main thread I see is that they are res- respected traditional leaders typically what well, I've seen, relatively small set, but the people that traditional respect and traditional uh, vested leadership, traditionally vested leadership responsibility in these communities is a big deal. To a, the, the government, you know, role vested leadership or authority carries less weight. It's still important, but yeah. in terms of open... In, in <laughs> <laughs> In terms of opening the doors, um, find find a leader or an elder who who gets it. Or even if they don't get it, they they understand that there's an issue. If they don't even if they don't fully comprehend what you're trying to tell them in terms of solutions, they will, they'll get there. Um, if they if they really get and feel the need to do something and it's a, a, a traditional leader that's a big step in the right direction. Because the way you know, my experience with communities and PNG has been if, you don't, if you're not aligned with a respected leader who's a, who's a centrist, um, I, I, I like the Noel Pearson analogy of the radical centre in terms of getting stuff done. It's someone who's prepared to take steps in either direction to try and bring everyone along. You know, they've they've got to be... Well, it's best if they're impartial and they're a neutral identity but respected by, by the community. And that, that tends to be... Um, not, not exclusively, but it tends to be a middle-aged to late-middle-aged male who's one of the landowners. Education's less of an issue. Um, my main contact in Manus only went to school to Grade 6 but he's just really passionate about what he does. And you know, we, we're learning from each other. He's te- teaching me heaps about culture and I'm teaching him about processes and you know, other things to do with hygiene, etc. So de- developing a relation, finding, you know, developing the relationship too, of course, is vital. You know, um, and being patient. You just have to be patient. There's, there's no substitute. And
1: listening, huh? it's Absolutely.
0: Like... And language, learn the language. At least have a crack. And my, my and talk how's, business, this, how's
1: that going for you?
0: My talkpissin's pretty good. Yeah. Um and fortunately Pisin and Bislama are quite similar, so I can actually understand a fair bit of what goes on in Vanuatu in language as well. I mean most people have pretty good English. Um, I speak... Uh, I have a very small amount of French that I can remember from school, so that helps. Um, but uh, l- make an effort, even if you're not very good, make an effort to, to speak the local language is a big deal.
1: Yeah, even just and, probably learning basics, you know, those those 10 essential words that you're going to be using in every conversation yeah. <laughs> probably makes such a big difference for just opening opening people right. to being wanting to speak with you, I would imagine. So you don't actually work with a translator. Is that correct? Um, I, in, in both countries, I will go, did they just
0: say X? <laughs> yeah, to someone who's, who knows, whose English is pretty good. Um, so there's no official, I don't take an official translator with me, no. Um, but I will, I'll break in and out of, like in PNG, I'll break in and out of Pigeon. Um, and people will speak to me in Pidgin and I'll answer in English if I'm not sure how to say it in Pidgin. And that that's often the case too because I find that, particularly in PNG, a lot of people can understand English to a greater extent that they can speak in it. I have the same thing in, in Pidgin. So they can ask me a question or tell me something in, in Pidgin and I can reflect it back to them in Pidgin or, and or English to check understanding and if they find then because then they say oh that's how you say that in English <laughs> particularly when it's around some of the you know subtleties around culture and perception about things having that having that bilingual approach is really good because because you can reflect those things backwards and forwards um,
1: yeah so I understand working in a in a in a foreign language myself here, <laughs> and living in a yeah. place that is constantly a foreign language. You're just yeah, it does interesting things to your brain. You can feel your brain just trying to like wrangle all that. Mm. Makes but it's fun. Happening and,
0: I like yeah, language. You know? So I mean, I learned. I worked in Russia for three months. so I learned yeah, you know, sort of basic survival Russian. Um, I learned. I worked in Texas. so I learned Texan. <laughs>
1: A whole other language in and of itself. Oh,
0: yeah. Good fun. Yeah. Good fun.
1: Great. Um, so do you want to also speak a little bit about the um, perceptions that the communities have of their waterways and how that sort of, it's almost like a different worldview, I would say, in a sense, than the way that we look at waterways and, and their values? And Yeah, it's, it's interesting.
0: Um, I'm, I'm better placed to speak to that. PNG than Vanuatu because I'm still a little bit early on the journey in Vanuatu with that sort of stuff because it's been work in, in Vanuatu has been mostly urban and marine, not so much talking, you know, getting further out, but I can talk to that a little. So, my experience in PNG is that you know, people are quite utilitarian in, to, in lots of ways about water resources, they, ha- they have to be. Um, They're quite smart, you know, it's, there's, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's genetic knowledge but it's certainly handed down traditional knowledge in terms of things like, uh, you know, get water from this river uh, just at the start of the incoming tide and get it from the middle because there's so many toilets upstream, if you don't, you're going to get sick. Um, Things around... Where I'm working is more, there's not rivers, it's, it's groundwater, s- groundwater, surface water and rainwater. Um, and a bit like throughout Asia, in my experience, you know, rainwater is definitely the preferred drinking water source. Um, in Manos, where I'm working, there's, there's heaps of surface water, but people don't want to drink it because it traditionally wasn't a source of drinking water and they avoid it. They'll go and wash in it. That's fine. Um so they'll either wash in the in the ocean or in the lakes. But drinking water drinking lake water they're a bit more hesitant about because they don't understand they really don't have a good reference framework for whether it's safe or not. Um, and it, that's it's interesting the perceptions because some of the research and work I've done on Manus recently uh, sorry, in some of that research, I explored about people's perceptions around, you know, why they, why they want a better water supply. And, and health and drinking water safety, health wasn't a big driver. Uh, it was there, but it was, you know, kind of fourth or fifth reason down down the list. Um, and it was there implicitly as well as explicitly because they... they People know that if they get water from the lake or from a shallow pool in the in the forest, or from a sh- or from a well that's just about run out of water, they know they have they know to boil it because they see that it changes and they've experienced the changes and they don't get so you know they don't get so sick if they do that. Um, so perceptions really kind of vary. Um, the where, where I'm working mostly there's not such an emphasis on the ocean as a as a as a resource for, for particular groups a um, bit different to I think well maybe it's different to what it was 40 or 50 years ago um, certainly now you know, people go and fish and they can fish anywhere in the bay so like on Manus los Negros uh, I was talking to this, issue when I was up there last time, wondering about uh, the impact of different activities on fishing. And we were talking about being able to build structures out over the water, which you can, you can only build a structure out over the ocean, you know, basically in front of your, your traditional land, but you can go fish anywhere. So that's a bit different to some other parts of PNG, parts of Vanuatu. There are traditional areas of the, the harbour that belonged to different family groups for fishing and and gathering shellfish and stuff. So again, comes back to context, understanding the the traditional relationships, which in the minds of the tradition, traditional communities take precedence over you know common law, which is quite interesting, and and quite explicit in the in the communities in PNG. You now my my um i've been I've been told on numerous occasions oh, you know we'll 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 deal with stuff through traditional law first and then if we need to we'll go to the council or we we'll go to the government if we can't settle it with with traditional law so it's still you know traditional attitudes and behaviors around responsibility for water and use of water are still alive and well um, some the surprising thing I found in PNG was around uh, around people's attitudes about rainwater tanks. You know, as a lot of the donors go in and they'll plonk half a dozen rainwater tanks on houses in the village where there's where there's uh, corrugated iron on the roofs. Fantastic. Problem is that the owners of those houses most likely um, don't want to share access to that water because they see the tanks on tanks on their land, on their house, it's their water. And there's also issues around people that don't live there coming along and just turning on the tap on the tank and leaving it running because they don't care, they're not trying to preserve the water there. So there's some unexpected things around so community assets versus private assets in terms of water resources and water management too that I found in PNG. So, explains a few things about why projects fail. I'm just
1: wondering how would you (laughs) Yeah, and I'm wondering what kind of recommendations based on your observation would you give to donors who might be interested in bringing rainwater tanks to communities um, to to really maybe do some sort of mapping of personal versus community assets or private versus community assets and figure out how to create a balance so that there's more, I guess, equitable access to clean Rainwater or something like that? I don't know. What would you yeah. What would you recommend? In lots of ways, I think the simplest
0: recommendation for, for donors is to not go into villages and put, you know, one 10,000-litre tank with, you know, five square metres of roof over it in the middle of the village. A, it's not enough. It's only going to last, you know, a few weeks after it rains. Um, you need to a better approach is for communal assets to be sufficient and appropriately distributed. So having a combined approach of doing things like, um, you know, if the community needs a central meeting place, which the, you know, a couple of these villages that I'm working with really do, they ne- they need a, a big meeting structure. You know, that could be 70, 80, 100 metres squared build something that's relatively cheap, lots of roof area, and put a dozen tanks or half a dozen tanks on it. So there's actually a sizable, substantial community asset there that people will take responsibility for. I think having the distributed tanks is a good idea too, but they need to be... people need to be appropriately engaged with it first. Some, Some people in the villages are fine with that. There's a couple of the... Landowners that I'm working with that have reasonably large houses with corrugated iron roofs and they have a a communal tank on their house because they get benefit from it. But not everyone sees it that way.
1: And then what about this issue of this disconnect again between people who understand the value of the resource and people who do not? So there's this, even if you create this amazing community asset, if there's still this wasteful behavior that happens, I mean, how do you how how does that how can that be built into a project to yeah to encourage people to value the water resource and not just let the tap run and, yeah. and waste it some of, some of it is strategically putting the assets like in schools
0: for instance because like one of the focus areas the focus area I'm working on at the moment is will the supply for two schools and then any surplus is available for the community i've seen a number of places where there's been reasonable water supply projects put in schools but insufficient storage because what happens is the community will use the water in the school and then the school kids suffer. But the communities communities tend to see assets in a school or at a clinic or at a church as being communal and um, everyone's responsibility. So, there's a, there's an, a social engagement it's and Good old tragedy
1: of the commons, right? And tragedy <laughs> so, the commons.
0: That's the one.
1: That's it. Once again.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. If it's everyone's, it's no one's. Um, and the whole, so,
1: but,
0: yeah. I really like the idea of having a community nominated water manager. And it's something that we've been teasing out with a couple of the communities I'm working with. There's nothing formal in place yet, but sowing the seed of when we do this, someone needs to look after it, and the community needs to pay that person. Um, You might have seen as well, but I've I've seen some cases in, I think it's in Africa, or it might be in, uh, I think it was in Africa, where people actually, people that want to do that job actually bid for it. So they say, you know, I, I will provide three pigs and two turtles and five bags of rice as a contribution to the community now because I want this job. And then the community pays that person for a year or two years or whatever it is. So that's an interesting philosophy. Um,
1: well, even just, I think, putting the call out as a professional job and having people Just go through what does that job entail? Why would I want to do that job? It creates a sense of ownership in the community because it will make people attracted towards that role, seeing the value of that role and applying for that role. And And then once that's filled in a professional capacity in a community, if if there can be funds, again, it's that question of funds, the first thing um, to support that role. You're on. You're well on your way to something, hmm. as and long then, as that person is not you know, corrupt or you know, a, doing things. A, a, so t- hopefully, the, the application process would stop that.
0: Yeah, and it as it's really important. A as a, as the outsider, not to nominate that person. Be part of the team that might be assessing them. But the community has to nominate and support those candidates. Um, and one thing that that. I think it's a good idea too is, is attaching a sense of status to that position um, and it, it's interesting having, talking about this now because I've actually got a guy in mind that I think will end up in that role in one of these communities and he's really keen and he, see, he sees it as very important, he, he doesn't require any encouragement to, to have a status in his mind associated with having that role on behalf of the community. Because it's it's a training and development pathway for them as well. because you know, what we will project, you know, projects we're doing will provide training opportunities for that for that person, or those people. You know, to to just improve their skills, and then the community then sees value because they can say, oh, yeah, you know, okay, this pipe's not working. This person knows how to fix it, so and can then I get my, it, I get my water back.
1: And then you can create like a network of community water managers within a different region where they can actually share resources or you know, bits of infrastructure that need to be repaired. Oh, I have an yeah, extra right. pipe over here. And, you know, creating a, a bit of a network to sort of empower them to be yeah. even more effective. And, yeah. Work together. Cause I think sometimes when you're, you have a role that's so responsible You want to do your very best. You might not always have the resources to know what the best decisions are when things get sticky. You can ask consultants, but you could also ask your peers, how would they approach this and would they support you? And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's my brain just getting excited about that idea and putting people together. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's happening then, huh?
0: Yeah, little by little. It's a very, very slow process because, well, most of what I'm doing, in fact, all of what I'm doing in PNG at the moment is pro bono. I'm not getting paid for it at this point. So we're in the in the project building phase. I'll get paid later.
1: And I think that's a really good segue also to talk about this balance between kind of passion projects and income projects. And as a small consulting firm, when you have a lot of knowledge and you have a lot of ideas, how do you actually, I guess, focus your resources to, on one hand, make sure that you can continue to do the work that you need to do, but at the second Side be able to actually affect the change that it sounds like you're really putting into place at the community level in PNG. How do you how do you balance that?
0: Yeah, it's hard. Um, uh, Short sure answer is every day. <laughs> it, it it's kind of in um, some ways it's very simple um, situation that we're in is where there's a where there's a paying client that needs work done, we do it. And then the the voluntary stuff comes gets worked in around that. So basically, you know, paying paying work takes priority because you need the paying work to to support the non-paying passion projects.
1: And it it kind pretty, of sounds like that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it it's what it is. It's what it is for I think everyone. But i I'm, um, I'm just thinking about the work in Vanuatu and the learning that you're. Getting out of your experience working in PNG, and how can you make a bridge in a sense to say, "Listen, the government of Vanuatu is in the process of doing this governance work or you know water quality monitoring," but at the same time, based on my experience in PNG, we also need to be doing this community work. And
0: yeah, there is a there is a bit of that. Um, have to be careful. One of the, you know, have to be careful about terms of reference with some of these projects because. Now the work in Vanuatu is on a a big donor project, and you kind of have to play within the edge of the field. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's I'm th- I'm there to do a job. You can you can bounce things around and make suggestions about other things, but there's a yeah, there's there's a fine line to walk, and yeah, you know, it's any small consultant we do the same thing there's a fine line to walk between doing the job that I'm there that being paid to do and being seen to be just trying to trying to generate more work while I'm being paid to do something else so it is a challenge but I having said that I constantly think about observations learning information from all sorts of places and try to see how that can be applied wherever I am so I I don't intellectually compartmentalize learnings um, I'm I'm constantly reviewing and saying well hang on we did you know this worked in PNG how how could we apply that here to what I'm doing how can I apply that even at things like understanding how family structures work yeah you know, at that on on the soft side of things say okay I know in PNG that you know Sunday mornings people do this, and the women will be doing this, but the blokes will be out doing something else. So I can probably catch the blokes down at the football field if I want to talk to them. So some, A lot of it's on the softer side. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I'm also thinking a lot about, um, I don't want to say educating donors in a sense, but it's mostly linking the community knowledge and the community approaches into the donor projects to yes. inform better donor fund allocation and uh, yeah effective important overall. and it's like you know you have that perspective with the rainwater tanks and png but then you're also having that um and and how it, and i can imagine that some donors are very open to that they want a very robust monitoring and and evaluation where there's a whole process of learning that happens at at the practitioner side and the donor side. And then I can imagine that there's maybe donors who are saying, look, you know, our outputs are X, Y, and Z, and that's really what we need to do right now. Um, So I guess you're, you're also managing, managing up, managing that relationship Uh, at the same time, which is critical because every project should make the next project better. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's and, the idea, but if that, if that learning isn't happening and that feeding up isn't happening, then it just makes it makes it challenging and it makes it wasteful, yeah. or it can I, make it wasteful, not
0: yeah. entirely. But as a as a small yeah you know, as a basically a sole you know, sole consultant, there's a lot of challenges, but also lots of ways it gives me the opportunity to be a bit of a change agent because you're not. I don't feel like I'm seeing this threatening by by donors, whereas, you know, if you get the big, the coffees or blah, 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 large consulting houses going in and trying to tell the donors what to do, I think there's the risk that they are perceived to be trying to change the playbook. Whereas as a small player, you tend to work more at a personal level. Um, and, you know, I know so far... I don't think I've actually picked up any work through advertising or, and minimal through bids. I only picked up a few, a few projects through bids. Most of it's been personal relationships and contacts. So, having that personal approach and, and using that to get the message out is really important too. Now, being being is- a
1: change agent. Yeah, which is a great segue kind of towards my closing question. Um, But before we get to that, I'm just wondering if there's anything else that we haven't covered that you think would be important to share uh, for this, this initiative, the Keeney initiative um, in particular, maybe any ways that you see opportunities for sharing knowledge throughout the region or building capacity that, you know, that is a no brainer to you, that maybe is something that I'm, we're not thinking about. Do you have any thoughts on that before we move to the closing question? And I see.
0: I see a number of different organisations trying to work towards knowledge sharing and and capacity building. And I mean, there's there's multiple organisations that I brush against that are trying to do these things. Um, I guess in an ideal world, you'd have everyone talking to each other, but I think. Part of it, part of that issue where I think a lot of efficiencies could be gained is through the larger organisations like, you know, whether it's ADBs or the SOPAX or um, DFAT, whoever it is, trying to engage more with smaller players because we tend to, we tend to be very more relatively specialised and working on small projects at a lower level and at a more personal level and I think there's a lot of insight there to be gained. I know it's not necessarily so efficient or easy for a large organisation to deal with small organisations, you know, I've been on the other side of the fence. But I think, you know, what what this initiative with the AWP is doing is is heading in, in, the, in that direction, and I think it's a good thing from that perspective. Um, I I do all sorts of projects. You know, I've been involved in all sorts of things because you you're in a village and someone says, oh, can you do X or can you help me with X? You know, um, you go, yeah, okay. <laughs> or in a remote you know a remote mining camp, they say, oh, yeah, got a problem with this if we don't know ourselves, we tend to have a network of other small consultants that we can contact and go, hey, how do we deal with this? It, it's more personal.
1: So what, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is that the, the partnership model that the AWP, the Australian Water Partnership, is developing, bringing together people who are working in the region as maybe a more of a, a entity of individuals coming together to be partners. In this sort of project is something that you see tremendous value in because it allows the smaller players to learn from the smaller players as well, and not just to have these. Yeah,
0: it has a, it that- has a
1: potential too. I mean, the packages of work that
0: we've seen so far are really big. Um, so yeah, like the 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 packages coming through from for that from Myanmar are quite substantial scopes of work, and I. I can understand the logic behind that. What what I look forward to is some opportunities for where there's for smaller players, where there's smaller smaller bundles of work that are maybe interdependent, maybe not interdependent, um, coming out through that process to to allow us to integrate more into that into that network. Um, yeah, I see, I see it's got potential and it's moving in the right direction and by necessity it's it's easier, it's part of the same coin though, it's easier for DFAT and AWP to deal with the big guys. Um,
1: so. Yeah, and, and it's the process as well of a government requesting assistance to achieve a certain objective yeah. from another government and that, that whole process is very different I think than maybe the process that you're engaged with as well but... um what I hear is really there is this potential to bring in the smaller players, to have smaller supplemental projects maybe that can bolster and boost and inform the larger projects to become more effective, something like that. Yeah. Does that sound?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And some of that might might happen, I guess, prior to the main project, you know, where you've got things like, um, yeah, th- there might be a large project being considered that's got – Uh, a component of national resources then there's international consultants whatever coming through AWP sometimes getting having one or two smaller specialist players embedded with that development team can help uh, finesse the scope so that the larger project works better and that's where we can add a lot of value because we do tend to have diverse experience um yeah, you know, bringing bringing that knowledge to bear. And also then at the other end as well, doing working on the M&E uh, is I think where smaller players can add a lot of value to that big process because, um, you know, we're relatively cheap. We don't have a lot of overheads, but we have that diverse experience that we can bring to bear and we can integrate with various teams quite easily. So,
1: Excellent. And... Moving on to the last question is, what advice would you give to people, maybe emerging professionals um, or others who maybe have a a strong foundation of skills who are looking to get involved in water work, development work or work in the Pacific?
0: Be very, very, very patient (laughs) and resilient. You need to be resilient. I mean, we started doing this three and a half years ago. And it's only now really starting to get legs. Um, it's It really is all about relationships and pers- just being relationships and networks, being connected, working out what you want to do and what you're good at, they're not necessarily the same thing. It's more important to do what you're good at <laughs> initially and then work out, then build from that to do what you want to do. Um, because you, you will learn, you have to be flexible and you will have to innovate as you go. Uh, and Unless my experience is around the Pacific, you're always going to come across stuff you don't know how to do and you have to work it out. Because you, you're not sitting in a big consulting firm in Sydney or Brisbane where you can ring up someone or go up three floors and there's a person there that knows how to build blue widgets when you're trying to build yellow ones. You, you have to work it out. And you have to be, pre- be prepared to ask and have a go.
1: <laughs> and as the uh, ultimate troubleshooter, <laughs> I can see how that has been able to serve you well in your work in the Pacific. Um, just being able to think critically, identify how to address a certain challenge that's just right in front of you that pops out, up out of nowhere maybe. <laughs> yeah. And um, having that ability I think has really probably served you well and, and created a lot of success for you in your work. There are still tears sometimes. <laughs> There are always tears. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're working in the space, it's it's hard sometimes because you see difficult things, and you're working at a level of humanity. I think that's um, it's confronting. So yeah, yeah. and um,
0: yeah, again, I'm not being derogatory, but um, but I'm not being derogatory. Pacific time is not what most people are used to. You know, thing, things happen slowly. They, ha- they happen in their own time. And there's a limited amount of you can do about that. And that varies from place to place. Um, I That was one of my greatest frustrations at first, and I, I didn't even really know what it was. Once I worked it out, it's okay. Just go with the flow and allow for it, and things work. Use the time to build relationships.
1: And, um... When you're in a project like this or uh, an area of work like this, you're in it for the long haul. Yeah, um, that's what I hear. Also, the patience is there. The timing is different. Yeah, things and happen. Yeah, at a different pace. So I've, I've stick-
0: Yeah, I've grown to love it. To be
1: honest, I
0: even just coming back to Cairns. You know, I come home and it's like, oh, it's busy here. <laughs> And you go and spend two weeks in the village in PNG, and just walking everywhere, and yeah, because that's what I do most of the time. It's on PMV sometimes, but most of the time we walk and talk to everyone. And might well, not know everyone, but everyone knows who I am because I'm the white fella, you know, the waterman wandering out the village. They know who I am, yeah, which is nice. It's it's really gratifying, hey. You yep. you you get. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of hard days, but it's really gratifying. Um, I'll, I'll close with a comment about Kiribati. I guess just to share that because the, the rewards are there. I was in, um, rather one of the other islands, and installing a, an overhead tank. So we we built these hand pumps off wells. So we put a hand pump to a little overhead tank, and ran out two taps in this church compound that was where the the pastor and his family lived. And we'd, we'd finished installing the system and I'd gone round to do the final leak tests, check that the taps were working, make sure they were turning off properly and stuff so I could sign off on the system for the donor. And one of the last tap was round the corner of one of the buildings, a hut, and I tested it, turned the tap off, walked back round the building and I hadn't gone more than about three steps and I could hear water running. Oh, is that tap fail just fallen off the pipe or something's broken? Turned around and there's one of the, the grandma from the family standing there running water into the bucket at the biggest smile on her face. And it was at that point I realized that she had never, ever, ever had access to running water. She was in her 70s. I thought, yep, that's why I do this.
1: Yeah, that's amazing yeah so that
0: was a a nice little thing that I carry around with me and try to remember on the hard days
1: yeah well, thank you for that story. That's a beautiful story and just seeing how lives even even in your seventies things can change and you can discover new things and experience joy and and water that's It's a great story. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. It's been Sorry? great to speak with you likewise and um Yeah, and uh, I look forward to hearing about what's new on the horizon and maybe we can touch base again in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we will.
1: Keeney is an initiative of
0: the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos,
1: articles, news and more.